0: Hello and welcome to the learning mate podcast where we invite educational leaders and influencers in education education technology and workforce development to share their research perspectives and insights about topics relevant to advancing teaching and learning I am your host Keith Chandler and in this episode, we are talking about the responsibility that higher education institutions have in making sure that they are educating a job ready workforce a workforce that is being heavily impacted by generative AI and the evolving technology that's uh, happening at a rapid rate. And to provide his unique insights, we welcome Dr. Andrew Sheen, Chief Learning Officer at Penn Foster, an institution that is offering over 100 self paced career relevant programs across their college, their career school, and their high school. He leads their academic program leadership, curriculum, courseware, academic support, faculty, non academic support, and academic operations in pursuit of improving student lives that is quite a hefty workload there dr sheen earned his doctorate of educational leadership and management from alliant international university and holds a master's in education and a bachelor's in sociology from the university of northern colorado he is sought after to give keynotes and is highly involved in academic research dr sheen thank you so much for joining the podcast
1: it's a pleasure to be here keith looking forward to it
0: awesome so uh but Before we dive into your insights on general education and what you're doing in the, the current ed tech landscape, uh, you have experience in the classroom and I love talking to teachers, um, especially at a high school level. You are a high school English teacher and were honored once with district teacher of the year back in 2009. And, you know, here you are now leading the academic journeys of over Three hundred thousand students a year at Penn Foster, so I'm curious to know what inspired you to, you know, work in education, and what continues to inspire you to work in education.
1: Yeah, thanks, Keith. I love, <clears throat> love the question. Um, so starting out, um, my my parents divorced pretty early when I was a little kid, and actually neither of uh, which had a college degree. I'm a first generation graduate, and. Uh, My mom actually went back to school to a vocational training to get her nurse's certificate. We were about seven years old, right after my parents divorced. And it changed our lives. You know, I mean, some of the difference of like her sleeping in the closet so my sister and I could have our own beds to everybody having their own room. And as a young kid, I just remember seeing that connection between her seeking education and getting career advancement and sort of the transformation of our lives. And I just thought to myself early days, wow, like there's something to this. My father as well. My father didn't have a college degree, went through vocational route to, um, to learn database management um, and, and ended up getting a job and sort of changed his trajectory. And so very early on, education for me felt transformational and I, I wanted to be part of it. Um, but going forward, I've had a couple of folks that have really inspired me. Um, speaking of being a high school English teacher, my mentor teacher's name was Ken Alino. And the best way to think about Ken is if you've ever seen Dead Poets Society, you remember Robin Williams in that role. It's just amazing. It was like, that's oh, yeah, we all want to be jumping off tables and just outside the box, teaching kids how to really think and believe in themselves. Right. Like That's Ken Alino. And so my my first day being a high school English teacher, I was assigned to him and just went and watched him teach, watched watched him run his classroom. And we used to call it an oasis of hope, you know, for for an hour every day, kids from very difficult environments, kids who didn't always have parents that, you know, were the kind of parents we, we wish all parents were um, felt good about themselves. And and he was he was crazy. He had like this this giant um, I don't know what's called a trumpet, but like this sound machine. And he would jump off tables and sound it. I mean, he was he was wild. But um, but he was a transformational teacher.
0: It sounds like he really made the classroom a, a place where students wanted to come and learn. It was
1: alive. Yeah, I mean, not only did kids feel good about themselves. Again, we called it an oasis of hope. Um, but they learned and they had fun, and and it was just they got transported. So. You know, people sometimes ask me, like, what do you want to do when you grow up? I want to be like Ken Olino. Uh, The other teacher that really inspired me was my um, one of my my doctoral professors. His name is Dr. Joel Levine. And he was crazy, too. He had like, you know, wild hair, never combed, incongruously like buttoned uh, shirts. He actually never taught much that was on the syllabus. Uh, His big thing was critical thinking. And, and that was, that was his, his jam. And, and it, it really blew my mind. I mean, he used to say, you know, most of education is sort of dangerous. It's like information in, you know, take the test information out. We used to call it like trash can learning. And as opposed to like really thinking about how to think well and looking at your own bias and having reflective skepticism and, Right. Being able to entertain multiple perspectives. And, you know, that's a real education is learning how to think. And, and just the, he would always say, like, just think about it. And most of your students are going to come to you and they're they're going to almost beg you, you know, te- teach me, teach me what to think, you know, as opposed to teach me how to think. And the the how is the key. Uh,
0: you, you made this great distinction between uh, you know critical thinking and just being told what to think, and that's actually a great segue into kind of your current responsibilities at uh, Penn Foster. Just because you know I, I mentioned your your portfolio earlier in regards to you know your shepherding academic programs, you're your developing curriculum and courseware, academic support. There is you know so much stuff that you are doing that involves critical thinking. And you know, as a as a leader who is looking at this, you know, from not only the the digital educator lens, but also you know, has insight into what all of these you know units are experiencing. What exactly do you think is the the level of education that we need to provide to people at every level to achieve that uh, that kind of critical thinking?
1: Yeah, I mean, so this is a this is a a tough one, and this is one that honestly, like, I I still wrestle with and. And if I could, let me just back into this question with just like the global sort of lens of, of Penn Foster Group, right? We've got high school, career, college, over three hundred thousand students. You have students who are fourteen years old that are you're going to online high school all the way to like seventy-seven, you know, who have a passion around around something or or just never, you know, graduated from college and and want to. And so you have everything sort of under the sun in this very broad spectrum of students. And so how do you integrate? high quality thinking, and this is key, especially in an environment where most students have a, a, a very specific career goal, right? They wanna be a farm technician, they wanna be a plebotomist, they, they wanna be a veterinary technician. And so like my, my belief is that you can't teach critical thinking, for example, in isolation. I mean, you can, but it's not, it's not ideal. And so, what you need to do is you need to think about how to fuse critical thinking into more specific, applied, situated, authentic context. And so, that sounds like a lot of educational jargon. Just let me give you let me give you an example. Right, uh, as opposed to like trying to teach you about reflective skepticism or. Looking at your own bias and assumptions, or how do you look at different perspectives and discern between which has merit and what does not? Take something very specific to the to the career that a student actually wants to be in. Right? Let's just use veterinary technician, um, and let's imagine a scenario where you're on the job, you're dealing with a particular animal and and and, and an owner and you have different perspectives about treatments. You have um, the owner who wants X, you have the veterinarian who wants Y, and you've gotta have like some ability to sort of navigate in that, that space. And so when you take a specific situated context and then you take what you want students to be able to do in terms of learning, let's say think well or think critically, the more that you can get into the situated authentic, the more powerful the learning is. And so to me, that's that's one of the key goals is as opposed to like thinking about, let's say like general education requirements, right? Where you have these isolated courses that while can have meaning to them, it's really in the direct application to the job that you want to get, that it actually becomes far more relevant and sticky. And so the key for me is taking those Critical thinking is just one of these durable skills, but the key is, is taking those durable or skills that transcend and integrating them into the actual skills that students need on the job. So in that situated context, that's when the learning becomes more powerful. I don't know, Keith, does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. I love that example, just because, you know, you when you think about education and uh, the example that you gave, like veterinary technician, you know, there is the the standard education that you have to go to to learn, you know, the anatomy, you have to learn all of the in communication, we just call it the hard skills, but in yeah. the hard and soft skills. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's more about incorporating those those softer skills that go into a situation like you described where, OK, you have to know how to also deal with with not only the patient as a a veterinary tech, but you have to know how to deal with the person that is bringing that animal to you in in the situation. And you have to also know how to deal with the other people that you're working with in a vet tech environment. All of that should be incorporated into the, the general education in order to, you know, empower students to achieve a successful career in whatever they're trying to do.
1: Yeah, and 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 we there's lots of other examples like um, you you mentioned communication. I mean, so we actually let's use our veterinary technician program. So there's there's general education requirements in that program. One is to have an English composition course, and so the old way would suggest that you take that composition course in isolation and you write argumentative essays or you write like the five paragraph descriptive essay. I'd argue. Let's do it the new way, let's take the actual communication scenarios that a student on the job is going to need to perform, Right, a memo to your boss, a patient write-up, and let's use that as the means to teach effective communication. But in the context of a situated applied situation or scenario, from the student perspective, and, and you got to think about a Penn Foster student, which is becoming the, the traditional, right? The once traditional was your, you know, your, your 18 to 22-year-old. The traditional today is actually more of your, your adult learner who's going back to get upskilled. That kind of learner, right, the 37-year-old the who's a single parent, you know, like my mom and, and who doesn't have time to do two years of general education requirements. And yet we still need to teach some of those, let's call them soft or durable skills, um, if you were to like teach that separate from the actual skills that the student feels they need on the job, it, it's going to be very, honestly, it's probably a lack of engagement. It's going to be hard to get motivated. It's gonna, you're going to constantly be asking, why am I learning this? But when you put it into context, it makes so much more sense. Oh my gosh, I get this. I can see how I need to use this on the job. And so the more that you can integrate the durable skills into the, the hard skills, Um, the more relevant, meaningful, and engagement it's going to be. And like, you know, Arthur C. Clark said, when students are engaged, learning often happens.
0: Absolutely. Um, I, I recently read an interview with you in uh, Medium.com, and you you talked a little bit about um, generative AI and artificial intelligence and how that is impacting education on a, on a higher level. So uh, I'd love to get some of your insights into how uh, Penn Foster is is utilizing AI or thinking about AI to do things like course development and really kind of reshape general education.
1: Yeah, I mean, so this is um, this is a game changer in my in my view. And, and just think about it, right? When you have like the CEO of Microsoft say this is more significant than like, you know, finding out about how, you know, fire or electricity, right? Or, or Bill Gates saying this is arguably one of the more transformational technologies in his lifetime. I mean, this is, this is big. And, and before I answer the question specifically about Pem Foster, I, I, I just like my hope is students don't use generative AI to not do the thinking and learning. Which is a worry, right? Absolutely. As opposed to, as opposed to, it's it's a tool in which we can leverage and create more of that like democratization of education, where where once only the elite, the wealthy, could afford, for example, a one-on-one tutor. Now, potentially, if you can solve for digital access you can have a one-to-one tutor for anybody like that. Those are the kinds of like game-changing, like I think opportunities that are upon us. Um, so at the Pen Foster Group, we've, we've been taking it really seriously. And so the things that we're into right now are integrating it into all of our writing assignments. And we're starting at, at first with high school. So We're doing a lot of testing. And so right now where we're about to launch this in high school, um, you will have the opportunity to get immediate feedback on your writing as you're writing, right? And by the way, you're seeing some of these technologies find their way into like common tools like Microsoft Word or email. I mean, these are starting to become more and more commonplace. We're working with a specific uh, partner who's helping us to design it just for our experience. So it's a little bit more targeted, but this idea that like, as you're writing, you're getting like that tailored personalized feedback is a pretty big deal, right? As opposed to, right? you're writing all by yourself. You're submitting it. You're waiting a week to get feedback. You have the like classic red ink all over your paper. Like we can blow that up and we can do that one-on-one tutoring. And so just think about that for a second. And if you're sort of an academic person and you're listening to this, think about that Benjamin Bloom study, right? Where they took the the kind of traditional instruction, you took mastery learning and then you took one-on-one tutoring and you compared the results. The one-on-one tutoring had two standard deviations, improvements compared to even mastery learning. I mean, that's huge. And now, right, you have the technology to make that scalable and affordable. So that, that immediate feedback for writing is one place we're starting. Um, we're also within our exam systems looking at testing generative AI right, where you can make, let's say, a choice that's not correct, but as opposed to just hearing that you got it wrong, it's actually going to give you specific personalized insights. And so, well, why was it wrong? Um, what potential resources might you need to further study in order to come you know, to the right conclusion? And so that personalized feedback on exams, I think, is huge. And just by the way, You know, I think assessment as an autopsy is also something we like really need to reimagine assessment should be more like a GPS device. Um, And so if you can leverage generative AI to make it more like a GPS device to make assessment more about learning, I think you also have kind of a a game changer. And then I think as it relates to like general education, you know, I I really think about um, kind of the durable skills that are more meaningful now than, let's say, 30 years ago have really changed. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, I look at even like my my son who's, you know, in in third grade and I'm like, why is he learning cursive? Why is he not learning coding? And so when I think about general education and AI, I think about the shifts that need to happen. Right. You you should come out of any like formidable post-secondary degree with digital literacy skills, which include understanding AI. Right. I mean you should have really strong communication skills that manifest in various digital ways. I mean, right. So taking the new, the emerging skills that you need to learn and then being constantly vigilant about integrating them so that the students are getting the most important, durable, soft skills that are essential for them to be successful in their career, as opposed to like just leaving them for 30 40 years and never changing them. So I think that that's the key and that's what we're focused on at Penn Foster.
0: Absolutely. And I th- there's this idea that you know some people have the a, a, a belief that maybe AI isn't going to affect their job or AI won't be used in their job depending upon what their their career choice is, but there's also just the education of knowing how to interact with um, AI when it comes to, I mean, making a phone call and dealing with a chat bot or, you know, uh, it's it's going to exist everywhere in our society. So it we need to learn how to interact with artificial intelligence to, I think, succeed as a, not only in our careers, but just succeed in the world.
1: Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, I mean, we used to, you know, we used to like kind of looking for like catchy sayings to get our instructors and, and various other Team members to really buy into it is like, well, when was the last time you used a paper map? Right. I mean, has anybody been working on a typewriter? I mean, like, we have to acknowledge that we are in a moment of, I'm going to call it revolution, but, but we're in a moment of significant increase in technology enhancements. And, and this is important because it's an if, it's not a guarantee. If we can, we can leverage to democratize education, to create more access, to not have it do all the thinking, right? As opposed to accelerate your ability to think, well, these can be really, this can be an amazing moment in our educational history. The opposite is also true, right? I mean, we also joke, it's like our students using AI to do all the writing and then the professors are using AI to do all the grading. Like who's, who's getting smarter? Who's so, learning what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a moment, right, where we have this incredible transformational technology. Let's lean in because it's not going away. Um, and let's figure out how to leverage it for good
0: yeah, that's a great per, uh, a great historical perspective. When you look at just the history of education, you had the internet that came and impacted, you know, how we um receive education. And then we had the introduction of mobile phones and everyone having access to, like, you know, seeing content firsthand, you know, in their pocket. and now this this generative AI coming in and and interrupting the the education. and so the the embracing of it is definitely the route that I think uh, people should go. and it it sounds like that's the route that Penn Foster is going.
1: Yeah, it's my it's my hope. But I mean, separate from pen, Foster, you mentioned phone, like it, it is worth noting, like in in our in our pockets exists technologies that that's arguably as sophisticated as like the technology that went into like sending the first person to like the moon. Mm-hmm. And educationally wise, it, it creates the ability for education to be ubiquitous, right, where in and out of school learning can be more seamless. Right. However, if we're honest most people think of their digital devices their phones as means to entertainment right or social which is fine like there's an aspect to that that's normal and understandable but have we really leveraged like phones for for more of that ubiquitous education probably not and so i, I think we're we're in another one of those watershed moments right where you have this transformational technology Let's think about how to use it for good. You know, I, I keep coming back to that because I, I, think it's, I think it's serious, right? Because bad actors can use it just, just as well to advance their right agendas as good actors can. Like, let's figure out how to create a wave of good actors and make this something educationally wise that's truly for the better.
0: Absolutely. Speaking of like mobile devices, is Pen Foster doing work in uh, say gamification engagement or um virtual reality engagement?
1: Yeah, so this is a good one. Um so first of all, when it just comes to like digital devices, i our our big mantra is we we want the student to be able to access learning regardless of what device they have. So I always do think of it was like agnostic to any device. like so web responsive, mobile friendly, you know, we, we really work on creating our experience so that it, it, it sort of achieves those standards. As it relates to things like virtual reality and gamifications, I, I it, we have dabbled in them, but there's a, there's a couple of key points here that I want to make. There, there's an aspect to gamification that I think is, is important, right? Which is people like incentives. They like being motivated by gaining certain uh, goals and getting certain like positive reinforcement. Gamification has some real merit to it. I personally believe that the, the danger is also that it could be chocolate covered broccoli. And what I mean by that is if you have a 30 and back to that 37 year old single parent who's got kids and who needs to pay the bill and they need to be upskilled in order to do that, I promise you they're motivated when and this is key when the learning experience is set up well. Right. So that it's it's really teaching them the skills in more situated, authentic, applied manners in which the student can really see how this is gonna be relevant to the job that they seek to attain. That's gonna help them make that social economic impact and not only their lives, but their children's lives. Like they're, they're motivated by that, if you can get that right. You don't need to do the gamification piece. In fact, in some cases it can be distracting. However, there's also probably a percentage of students and let's argue a younger generation who's more used to, for example, like video games, or maybe there's something to that. So we've dabbled a little bit in that, but it hasn't been our primary focus. I am a big fan of leveraging virtual reality only to the extent that you can create even more of that situated authentic learning, right? So we have a really big skills trades program, right? Imagine a virtual reality can create a scenario where you don't have to go drive 10 miles to X person's house to like, you know, try out something you just learned. You can be in that virtual simulated environment where you're tinkering, let's say with like the electrician all stuff and and you're learning, you know, what's working and what's not in more of that true applied direct way. So I I think the like learning theory behind that when when set up well can be super impactful. Here's the challenge though. It also requires a ton of bandwidth, uh, can be very expensive and the tools to make it accessible aren't as affordable yet as, as they should be and so we've we've designed virtual reality um, we've partnered with virtual reality um, vendors but we haven't adopted it at scale because so many of our of our students don't tend to come from really high socioeconomic backgrounds and so we need to be very mindful about what they have access and what they don't have access to
0: that is very uh Reminiscent of your use of critical thinking, um, and how you really know your students and your learners there at Penn Foster. Um, and finally, uh, my my last question, just because I know we're running a little bit short on time, um, in, in my mission, personally, to stay educated on as many topics as possible. It's the new year, I'm constantly looking for, you know, books, materials to consume. Uh, to to keep myself educated. So, is there a a book, a film, a a podcast, or something that you would recommend uh, for myself um, as a, as a lifelong learner to keep me educated on something that you're passionate about?
1: Yeah, that's a fun fun question. Thanks for this one, Keith. So, I've got I've got two for you. So, one is kind of an old school book, but it is it is one of my favorite, and it's called The Road We Make by Walking, and it's by uh, Miles Orton and Pablo Ferreri. If you're an education person out there, I'm, I'm guessing you've heard of of Pablo Ferreri. His famous work, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, is like it's like a have to read, especially if you're if you're an, an educator. Uh, Miles Orton isn't as heard of. He was a community organizer and is probably more famous than anything for teaching uh, adults um, who were weren't literate how to read during the civil rights movement so they could vote. Both just transformational educators. And in this book, they're like back and forth and back and forth and they're debating. But one of the big questions they ask is like, what's the mark of a great education? Um, and they come up with this idea of restlessness. And I just love that. Right. I mean, yes, we need to teach students how to be more career aligned and so that the value that they're paying is explicitly creating economic mobility. But but I also love that idea of like how to think well and, and that restlessness that happens when You've got something really worth pondering, or when you get curious, or when something that you once thought was true is being challenged. Right? So restlessness. That that's that's a book that's worth reading. Uh, The second is if um, if you probably speak to one of the folks that work for me with me, um, they say what's like Andy's favorite leadership book. They're going to tell you it's Obstacles the Way by Ryan Holiday, and uh, it's based on meditations by Marcus Aurelius. If you've seen The Gladiator, he's the good king, Marcus Aurelius, and um, really, the, uh, I, I would argue sort of the godfather of the Stoics philosophy. And what I find so brilliant about the obstacle is the way is that so many of the people that we revere and look to today has these incredible uh, achievers, Lincoln, Michael Jordan, like go down the list. You'd think that they just like, you know, landed in greatness overnight. The reality is that these folks have gone through a ton of failures. Michael Jordan got cut from his high school basketball team. You know, Lincoln, you go down the list of the things that Lincoln, you know, got hit with, and and yet they found a way. And so this importance of resilience and how you leverage challenges and failures to continue uh, on and keep going. And in some ways, sometimes the obstacle can be the way. That's the title of the book. So those are two books that I promise you are are worth your time and um, hopefully will inspire you.
0: Thank you for those recommendations, Andy. Dr. Andy Sheen, Chief Learning Officer at Penn Foster. Thank you for joining the Learning Mate podcast today to provide your insights on uh, the future of education and general education. We appreciate your time. Thanks, Keith. Enjoyed it. To learn more about our guest, visit learningmate.com podcast. There you will find our library of episodes, live links to all of the resources we referenced during our episode, and a little questionnaire. If you would like to be a guest or have an idea for a topic, please feel free to start the conversation. The Learning Mate Podcast is a production of Learning Mate Solutions Incorporated. I am your host, Keith Chandler. And until next time, thank you for listening.